Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us here at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. New York time. Could be anywhere in the world. And find our back shows, including one in a few days at visionaries.podbean.com. And my guest today is Andrew Feenberg, who is a um, research chair in philosophy of technology in the School of Communications at Simon Fraser University, college roommate of filmmakers Walter Murch and Matthew Robbins, student of Frankfurt School figure Herbert Marcuse, prominent philosopher, chronicler of Western Marxism, second person to teach online, and scholar of technology. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing fine. Great. And you're in Canada? Yes, I'm in Vancouver. Cool. So I'm in New York and uh, Miracle of Modern Technology. And I've known Andrew since uh, our college days. One of those people you bump into every 10 or 20 years. And uh, one of the times I bumped into Andrew when he was teaching at San Diego State and uh, visited him and our conversation led to him explaining to me what Marxism was and it was really clear, you know, and so that's one of the things Andy's great at. So hopefully we can uh, speak more than this one time, but this time let's um, talk about Marxism and Andy, since a lot of my Younger colleagues, I guess, consider themselves Marxists. What is Marxism? Oh, that's a that's a big question. It, one thing it is is the ideas of a German guy named Karl Marx. So, what are his right? dates? What are his what? When did he live? I'm sorry. It's there's a when problem with audio. Did he and when, when is Marx writing? When did he write? Oh, this is in the, like, from 1840-something to the 1860s, okay. uh, 70s. He, he, um, his big contribution is a book called Capital. Um, and uh, in that book, he describes the nature of capitalism and explains why it is going to collapse and be replaced by socialism. Any moment. We're still waiting. It could be, it could be that uh, what's going on now will accelerate that. Maybe, but I think we have now gotten far beyond the world that Marx was writing about in the 1850s and 60s. Um, his world was one in which Capitalists competed on open markets, free markets, but we no longer have such markets, except maybe in things like restaurants. 
and the hardware stores. Uh, everything now is organized by huge corporations that exploit the government in order to make money. And it's a very different world from the one in which there were economic laws that could um, lead to the collapse of capitalism. Now, if capitalism is going to collapse, it'll have to be for other reasons. And also, it was a time when capitalism meant big industrial corporations, right? Yes. Well, no. When Marx was writing, corporations were still fairly small by our standards. Okay. The big corporations come at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. People like Rockefeller and uh, Carnegie create them. So he was writing before them. John, hi. Hi. Oh, what fun to see you. How have you been? Likewise. This is Anne Marie. Yes. And uh, Anne Marie, are you still teaching? I just finished. Retired. Oh. Okay. So you're going to retire soon, right? Yes, I will. I don't have any plans unless they make me go back to school. As long as I can teach online, my wife will let me teach. Ah. <laughs> okay. Good to see you. Likewise. Good to see you, John. <laughs> Fun. So, um, how did, you know, if you think of um, various philosophers of the late 1800s, how did Marx become of such central importance? Well, that's because his ideas were adopted by the labor movement. A large part of the labor movement became Marxist. That is to say, they, um, they accepted the basic framework of, uh, of capital, of his book Capital, and believed that the long-term trend of capitalist development was toward collapse. And so that gave people confidence that uh, Advocating socialism was not just a fantasy of some individuals, but actually a predetermined uh, uh, destiny. And so this, uh, this idea became popular with working class people and uh, the labor movement and the political parties that represented workers like the, the uh, Labor Party in England or the German Social Democratic Party. And that made Marx a major figure in the landscape. And then the Russian Revolution finally uh, seemed to confirm that, in fact, socialism was a real thing and it was going to happen. Uh, of course, we know the history gets a little more complicated after that, but that's, uh, that's how Marx became so very famous. Interesting. So what if you had to summarize things like what, base and superstructure and means of production and surplus value? What are the key ideas of Marxism? You know, I would say, I would put it somewhat differently. There is, of course, a whole technical vocabulary associated with Marxism and um, a kind of sociology or e economic sociology, but there's a much more basic idea, which is about the nature of history itself. I think this is here in a very short 
summary, here's what I think Marx was really about. His idea was that human beings started out in tribes, very poor and very solidary. They took care of each other in these tribes. Of course, they must have had plenty of arguments and problems, but they were uh, confined in a small social group that had to maintain a certain amount of solidarity in order to survive. In those conditions, people developed their individuality at very low levels. They could not become um, individuals as we understand it, but were restricted to a very simple level of individuality. On the other hand, they had a high level of cooperation. Class society developed with agriculture. People were able to live apart from the tribe on their own ground where they could develop a higher level of individuality, but cooperation suffered. People became individuals at the expense of their cooperative uh, capacities. Solidarity was weakened by the fact that they could live apart. And then finally, Marx argues, capitalism develops this competitive um, individualistic spirit to a high level, while at the same time creating a system of cooperative labor, because that's what industrialism is. So you have a weird contradiction in, the, uh, in capitalism, high level of individuality, high level of cooperation, both at the same time, and in conflict because of the competitive nature of a private property-based uh, economic system. And that contradiction will finally be resolved under socialism, which will um, restore the cooperative structure of the economy that was lost since the era of tribes without eliminating the individuality achieved by class society. So you'll get a synthesis, a kind of uh, Hegelian synthesis of uh, all of human history. And so that's the basic historical scheme that underlies Marxism. So how would you distinguish um, what you just described and maybe Soviet Marxism and then the Western or Frankfurt School Marxism of Marcuse? Well, I think all, all Marxists believe in something like this scheme. So it doesn't distinguish the Soviets from the Frankfurt School. It's very general. Um, there are other reasons, though, to make a, a distinction between them. The, the Soviet system was based on a one-party state and economic planning. And um, it had a large element of police suppression of uh, Individual, individual initiatives. So it's not a good model for a society. We wouldn't want to live in such a society, even though in some respects, it was certainly doing a good job. It kept everyone employed. It, it enhanced women's rights, um, but with large uh, labor camps for political dissidents, it doesn't seem attractive. The Frankfurt School was very critical of this Soviet system 
did not believe that it was a good application of the ideas of Marx and proposed a very different notion of socialism uh, based on individual freedom rather than uh, a single party state supported by um, an active police force. So this very different vision of socialism has not been realized, but it still stands there as a hopeful future that many people uh, look forward to. If it were realized, uh, what are some thoughts about what it might look like? Well, one, one idea that Marcuse, for example, entertained was the notion of council communism. You know that what the, the word Soviet in Russian means council. And so the original idea at the time of the revolution in 1917, 1918, was that workers would form councils that would control the enterprises in which they worked and that this would be the base of the state. This in contrast with the democracies we inherit from the 18th century, which are based on uh, neighborhoods. So in this case, instead of neighborhoods, it would be workers' councils, uh, factory councils, and soldiers' councils also. Marcuse actually was elected to the soldiers' council in Berlin in 1918 during the German Revolution. So he, he had a personal experience of council communism. It just didn't last very long. Um, so this idea then would, this is one idea of socialism that was picked up in 1968 in France by many of the students and workers who were in revolt then. Uh, there was a big uh, social movement in 1968 in France the biggest actually of the 60s. And it was called autogestion in France, self-management. The idea was that social institutions would be managed by the people who work in them. They would choose the people who would lead the operations of the institutions, whether they were government agencies or um, large apartment buildings. We actually have that, right? It's called the condo. Uh, what do they call it? The condo council, or right? Yeah, and uh, or factories. And in any case, self-management was supposed to be a substitute for a democratic substitute for the kind of parliamentary democracy that uh, currently prevails in in France. So let me, uh, based on what you just described, you're also a scholar of technology, and. <clears throat> One of my concerns about what you just described is, would that allow for, uh, or would it suppress, for better or worse, uh, Zuckerberg's and Gates and Jobs and, you know, the um, totally unpredicted entrepreneurship that leads to new industries? Some of these people you mentioned should be in jail. Of course, there's a question, how, how would you get uh, the entrepreneurial skills uh, to fit in with an environment in which workers had a lot of control over uh, the activities of the people who employed them? I don't know the answer. I mean, this, 
every social system as it emerges has to experiment in order to find new ways of uh, of dealing with uh, the questions raised by its own existence. And presumably a socialist system, had it been established in France in 1968, would have engaged in experiments to figure out how to um, preserve the uh, initiative required for innovation in the context of a socialist uh, government. So, I mean, I, you can imagine ways, you know, in, in the 1880s, there was a socialist utopia published in America called Looking Backward. Did you ever read that book? Bellamy. Yeah, Edward Bellamy. And that, that's a fascinating book. He describes, on the one hand, what he called the Industrial Army, which was the uh, industrial system organized more or less in a military fashion, so very authoritarian, the opposite of the French idea of self-management. Still, he also argued that a, his socialist society was also designed to have a sphere of freedom. And this sphere concerned everything that could not be controlled adequately by expert authority. So that would include music, art, literature, um, opinion, you know, newspapers, and also invention. And oh. people, people who were working in these non-industrial fields could appeal to a public to support them. And if they had enough subscribers, they would be freed from working in the industrial army to just pursue their... Um, artistic or inventive uh, or a political occupation. And so this, this is a bipolar society. Half of it is authoritarian. The other half is totally individualistic. So, what, I mean, what's the name of that website where Patreon? I don't a know. Lot, a, a lot of um, bloggers are supported by a website called Patreon, so it's a central way. Without, if you're going to blog, I don't. You don't have to take my credit card and bill me monthly, my ten dollars a month. You you become a Patreon member. I do, and then it's a centralized way of supporting uh, entrepreneurial bloggers. So that's sort of like what uh, with the the uh, addition of a little electronics. It's kind of like what Bellamy was talking about in the 1880s. So, I mean, I guess my feeling is people try too hard to think about how this is supposed to work. Um, it should be tried to see, see what happens and let people experiment and develop it. And you, the problem with the Soviet Union was that they froze themselves into a certain pattern without allowing any experimentation. If people tried to do something a little different, they got put in jail or in a mental hospital. Um, when the Czechs came up with an alternative way of managing socialism, they just sent in the tanks. They could have learned from the Czechs, perhaps, how to do it in a different way from the way they inherited from the revolution. But they didn't learn anything from the Czechs. Instead, they invaded them. Uh, so... This, I think, is ultimately why the system collapsed. It was too rigid. It could not learn. And societies have to learn. 
So we just have to hope that a freer version of socialism would be capable of learning. So let me ask you, uh, you're an academic. Uh, what, how would you describe the Marxism of your academic colleagues and how, if at all, does it interplay with postmodernism? Um, <laughs> I think a lot of my colleagues are not sophisticated Marxists, but they are respectful of Marx's ideas in a general kind of way and very critical of capitalism for all kinds of obvious reasons that we could we could go over if you're interested. Um, I'd be, yeah, let's hear your list when we're done with the know, academics. Most people know what's wrong. I mean, you know, look at the internet, for example, taken over by these monsters who simply want to gather information about us in order to manipulate us and then sell it uh, to the highest bidder, including to foreign governments who interfere in our political system. I mean, how, this doesn't have to be. This is the way the internet evolved under the impact of the capitalist system, but it certainly is not part of the technology. Right. But uh, so before I interrupted you, you were still talking about your academic colleagues. Well, they all are. I'm in a communication department. They're all very aware that the internet has been uh, taken over by parasites and monsters and now is a dangerous thing rather than a benefit to humanity. You know, I, last summer I went to a conference of computer scientists and computer uh, people working in the computer industry in Germany. And they were all really angry, angry about what has happened to the Internet. And I, you know, it reminded me of my father's generation, who uh, he was a physicist. And these physicists thought they were doing something great that had to do with the true, the beautiful and the good. And where did it end up? In atom bombs. So these guys, I think, had the same impression. With computing and with online communication, they were doing something great for humanity. And where does it end up? With Zuckerberg sucking the life out of the uh, internet for profit. So uh, they want the internet to be broken up. They want the companies to be broken up and the regulations to make it illegal to capture private information and sell it. And um, so, I mean, this is capitalism at work, right? And it's, uh, it, it, it deserves to be criticized. And uh, when you do criticize it, people think, well, what could be, how could we do things otherwise? And one obvious answer is some kind of socialism. Uh, okay, so going back to technology for a moment, um, how do you... How does your interest in technology dovetail with your interest in Marxism and where does it lead your thinking these days? Well, it's kind of a complicated question. The technology has been developed, modern technology has been developed for the most part since the 18th and 19th centuries under the control of capitalist enterprise and uh, to some extent also the military. And very few other sources of influence have been involved. 
um, no one in the 19th century asked workers how they wanted the technology of the factory to be designed. Um, people simply were excluded from uh, the decisions that were made about technology. And so it was set on certain trajectories that are not inevitable. There are trajectories that are that make sense technically, but but also are influenced by social choices. And those choices were made by a very small minority um, under the pressures of the market, right, and market competition, and uh, the need to extract wealth from uh, enterprise. So here we are today inheriting this technical system and building on it, and certain imperatives emerge from this history. Occasionally, people protest and try and change the trajectory. That's what happened, for example, with environmentalism. There was nothing in the business system that would have led to the environmental reforms that have occurred in the last 60, 70 years. That all came from politics, from public opinion pressuring politicians to make changes in the industrial system. I can remember reading an old copy of Fortune when I was studying environmentalism in, this, in the 1970s. And this copy, I think it was from the 1950s, had an article which uh, said that America was very fortunate to have so many rivers to carry away the waste products of industry. And it would just disappear. Yeah. So that was the mentality, you know. Now, of course, that sounds crazy, but it wasn't crazy at all. It was it was standard uh, thinking in the 50s and 60s. So my my, my late father-in-law was a chemical engineer. And, you know, when we had this new consciousness, I said to him, what were you guys thinking? And he said, we thought the earth was infinite. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's exactly uh, the mentality that prevailed, and it took the victims of this so-called infinite uh, Earth to remind people that it's actually finite. So the victims played a role, but you know, throughout the 19th and early 20th century, the victims were ignored. They had no standing in the, the realm of technology. So. I guess the point is that there are substantive consequences to who runs the technological show. It's not just about smart people coming up with the next step in some predetermined uh, path to uh, consumer heaven. It's, uh, there are many paths, and the ones that are chosen are the ones that have the power behind them, the social and economic and political power. So it matters who's involved. And we now are involving more people in technical choices than ever in the past through movements like the environmental movement. Um, when children in school demand a different energy system, you're obviously on another planet. Huh? This is not the 19th century, guys. Uh, children now have a voice in the design of technology. So uh, 
the idea behind the socialist um, reform of society is not just a change in administration, but we're also dealing then with the consequences for technical choices. And that could lead to very different evolution of technology from the one that we were set on in the 19th century. So when, uh, staying with technology for a minute, when you and I were finishing up college, uh, McLuhan's understanding media burst mm. on the scene. How has that influenced you and how do you see it regarded by your colleagues today? I don't think McLuhan is widely studied anymore, except maybe in Toronto. Um, but I think, I mean, his basic idea is correct. The basic idea is simple and it's correct. It's just that the way he presented it in the environment in which he presented it made it quite difficult for people to uh, accept. Um, but he had his impact at the time. Uh, he certainly became famous. But so the how would you idea, summarize the basic idea? The medium is the message. Uh -huh. in, other words, in other words, but I mean, we can restate that in ways that are much easier to understand now because we've had a lot of experience with this idea. But the idea is that the, the way in which uh, things are done, the technologies that are used to make things happen have an impact. It's not indifferent whether you take the car to work or take the bus or ride a bike. The medium, the, the car, the bus, or the bike, that's the message. It has its own reality and its own uh, influence on uh, your life and on the world. And you can't just discount the medium. It's part of the what's really going on. In fact, sometimes it's the most important thing that's going on. So I think that basic message is correct. And that, um, that idea got recycled in many different ways uh, by uh, different thinkers, many of whom did not have any connection to McLuhan. And finally, it has pretty much penetrated. I think by now, people are generally aware that that how you do things matters. It's not uh, just a question of what your intention is and what the, uh, the, the agenda is, but also how it's going to be implemented. How would you, um, how would you describe the environment you live in, the academic world you live in? The, what are people saying about technology? Where do you fit? Um, what, how's your position similar to different from that of others? What's going on? What's going on is that the academic world is being destroyed. The administrative bloat has taken over. Huge I think salaries. it's like tenfold in my, I've, I've been teaching yeah. since 69. And I think it's literally tenfold. Yeah, it's quite possible. And the salaries are also tenfold for the people at the top. Uh, the, the, I just read somewhere, the, I don't know if this is true, but it, but it could be true. The, lead, the top administrators at Johns Hopkins now earn $29 million a year. One or all of them? 
Yeah, together, all together, the, you know, the oh. vice presidents and the president. And, I mean, $29 million for, to what? To do what? What's the, the scandal is at the other end as well. More and more of the f teaching is done by precarious workers. We, in California, we called them freeway flyers because they had to zip from one class to another in two or three, four universities in order to make a living. The freeway flyers have now taken over their half or two thirds, in some cases, of the teaching faculty. And they have no, often no uh, permanent contract. They're, they're, it's precarious labor. They sometimes have no health insurance. Um, so why would anyone want to be in this business? Uh, it's uh, the end. I think this is the end. In, in New York, they're on the subway grading papers. Yeah, well, <laughs> so of course. So what do you see future-wise in academia? You see people figuring out they don't need a college education. Do you see uh, industry taking over? What do you see? I, cultural decline. I mean, just, you, you know. Can tell, you can tell we're getting old. <laughs> they, they, we complain about cultural decline. I, I wasn't so convinced when I was 60, but now I am. <laughs> so maybe it is a function of age, but I don't think so. I think this is really happening. That the, uh, and it shows up in many ways. And uh, I mean, think about the resistance to science that has appeared and has been made evident during the COVID-19 crisis, the millions of people who no longer believe in it, um, that's a symptom of a failed educational system. Right. And uh, on the, in the humanities end, it's books being churned out by Rutledge, which are unreadable. <laughs> well, but unreadable books have been around forever. Oh, <laughs> I don't know that it's worse, that that's worse now. Maybe the quantity is greater. Um, I, I mean, of course, you can complain about trends within the academic world, and there is certainly a, um, a large, there's certainly things to complain about. But, but this seems to me less of a problem than the structural changes. I'll give you another example. Right now, online education is becoming a standard feature because of the virus. And universities are finding it difficult to get students to pay full tuition for online education because it's viewed as an inferior product. Why is that? That's because for the last 20 or 30 years, universities have been debasing online education in order to make money off it. So there's no history in most universities of high level, skillful uh, online education. Instead, students get you know, some videos and some online tests and it's an easy credit. It's convenient, but you wouldn't want your whole college experience to be like that and uh, at a high cost. Be like, you know, universities giving you a library card Say, now you pay us $40,000 a year to go to the library. It's, it's ridiculous. 
so they've they this is again the cynicism of the academic administrations sucking money out of the students with a fake educational product for 20 30 years they've now debased one of the um, only recourses they have in this crisis for uh, continuing their educational work without face-to-face -face classes so you know i think it's symptomatic of the, the bad management that is now completely overrun uh, American society, not just in the White House, but also at Boeing, at Facebook. At, you know, it's uh, there's a it's a, I think an amazing situation in the banks. It's an amazing situation in which the people running things no longer display the kind of prudence and competence that uh, we could expect of them 50 years ago. Well, I think uh, it's interesting in banks, if you look at a firm like Goldman Sachs, it's publicly traded. And whereas 50 years ago, the, it was the partner's money. Yeah. So if someone lost a billion dollars, that <laughs> came out of somebody's pocket. It mattered. Okay. If a trader makes $100 million, he gets a $10 million bonus. If he loses $100 million, he just gets another job down the street. Yeah. No, there's something seriously wrong, not just with academic institutions, although I think it's really reached critical proportions in that case, but with the management of the society. And it's kind of scary, actually. What happened at Boeing is very scary. Right. I'm I'm lucky in that <clears throat> it's interesting that I teach in an architecture school at an art architecture and design school, but I'm in architecture. And my colleagues are really capable. It's just amazing. I mean, they do, you know, it's on the level of movie special effects, what they can do with computers. And right now there's a woman in my school who goes into the gallery, spins her cell phone around. She now has the gallery in virtual reality. She then collects her student digital projects, puts them on the wall, puts them on display stands, and you can go visit them and walk around and look at them. <laughs> so, um, so there are some capable people, at least in, in my school. <laughs> No, I, I don't think that the problem is that people who are teaching in universities are no good. That's not the problem. It's the structure of the universities that's the problem. And that's down to the leadership. Right. Um, again, think about Boeing. The fault is, it's not that, they, that there's no talented engineers at Boeing. That's not the problem. Of course there are. It's the management decided to make uh, essentially make safety a uh, option. Right. Uh, yeah, that's pretty scary. I mean, when they finally get it back in the air, maybe there'll be a, a thorough book that'll be worth reading. Right now, we just get glimpses through Wall Street Journal of how bad it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, so listen. This has been great. Um, let's wrap up. Uh, I've been talking to 
Andrew Feinberg, who's a professor at the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University in Canada. How'd you end up in Canada? Ah, they offered me a good job. Great. I'm waiting. <laughs> and uh, so I'm John LaBelle, your host. This is Visionaries. You find us here every Monday at 10 a.m. on prn.fm. And you can catch this show in about a week at visionaries.podbean.com. Andy, thank you. Thank you, John. Good to and see now you. Now I'm going to make sure I try not to lose this recording. So I'm going to sign off. Okay. Bye-bye.